Well, hello, hello. This is Frank Zafiro welcoming you to Wrong Place, Right Crime, a podcast about mystery authors and life. And in today's episode, we are going to talk with Larry Kelter, the author of Back to Brooklyn, the official sequel to the film My Cousin Vinny, and also one of my co-authors. Larry has a lot of interesting things to say, but first, let's hear from our sponsor. Wrong Place Right Crime is sponsored by Down and Out Books, and so let's hear from the editor-in-chief and owner of Down and Out Books, Eric Campbell. Frank, I'm back. It's Eric Campbell from Down and Out Books, and today I'm excited to tell your listeners about a couple upcoming releases. Down and Out Books is honored to have been asked to publish the fourth Batracan anthology this year. This time around, it's called Passport to Murder and is edited by John McFetridge. Each year, I've been amazed at the caliber of the contributors and the quality of their stories. This year is no exception. A few of the 22 contributors include Chris Gravenstein, Hillary Davidson, Janet Hutchings, and Gary Phillips. As in the past years, the uh, proceeds will be donated to Frontier College, which was uh, a winner of the UNESCO Literary Prize. Many of you have heard that Down and Out Books is releasing 11 titles by Anthony Neil Smith in ebook and trade paperback formats. The list includes the long lost Triple X Seamus that was kicked off of several online retailers. Not only will the titles be available online in stores, at least the cool stores, but you'll be able to get signed copies directly from Neil by way of Down and Out website. The books will be released in waves over the next couple of months, so please sign up for the newsletter to be, stay on top. These books are available for pre-order now. You can find out more at downandoutbooks.com. And Frank, as usual, thanks so much for your support and asking me to come on the show. Well, thank you, Eric. Down and Out Books is a great publisher, folks. If you like uh, crime fiction, and I'm guessing if you're listening to this podcast, you do, it's found a, t- a home there at Down and Out Books, particularly the gritty kind. If you like edgy crime fiction, you can find a ton of it at downandoutbooks.com. Now let's turn to our featured guest for this episode, Lawrence Kelter. Uh, Larry Kelter is a prolific author of uh, a couple of different uh, series. Uh, and he is one of my co-authors. He and I wrote The Last Caller uh, together, which was published by Down and Out Books, and uh, also a book that is uh, yet to be published called Fallen City. We're going to hear a lot about uh, Larry's writing, his uh, sequel to My Cousin Vinny, entitled Back to Brooklyn, uh, and all of his other series. One thing we're not going to talk about a whole lot is the collaboration that he and I had And if you're wondering why, uh, we did actually talk about it when we uh, initially recorded the podcast. Uh, But uh, subsequent to that, both Larry and I appeared on another podcast called It's a Mystery Podcast, which is hosted by mystery author uh, Alexandra Amor. And uh, if you go to Alexandra Amor um, or type in It's uh, It's a Mystery Podcast into Google, you'll you'll definitely hit on it. we uh, sat for uh, uh, for an episode uh, just a little bit ago, and uh, all of the things that Larry and I talked about in this podcast, we talked about again on It's a Mystery Podcast. So rather than rehash them and uh, uh, on Wrong Place, Right Crime, let's, uh, I'm going to send you over there to It's a Mystery Podcast for that uh, aspect of uh, Larry and I. And the focus of this episode will be on Larry's solo work, 
uh, particularly Back to Brooklyn, the, the sequel to the film My Cousin Vinny, and uh, his other uh, series that he works on. So let's hear uh, about Larry Kelter. Well, hey, Larry, welcome to the show. Hey, great to be here with you, Frank. Let's start with the biggest thing going uh, for you right now, and that is Back to Brooklyn, the sequel to the film uh, My Cousin Vinny. That's super exciting for uh, for you, right? It really is. Um, My Cousin Vinny has always been, you know, that film for me. It's the kind of film I just can't stop watching. If I'm home and it pops up on a TV, you know, I just have to drop everything and watch it. I know all the lines. Even though I've heard the lines 20 times before, I still laugh at it. And if I've got an appointment to go to and all of a sudden it comes up on TV, I know I'm going to be late for the appointment because I've got to watch one more scene and one more scene, you know, and just... I just, I'm a junkie. I'm a My Cousin Vinny junkie, and I always have been. What is it about that movie that uh, that you like so much? Just the, the humor of it, the timing? Well, the, the humor is part, is, is a big chunk of it, obviously. I mean, the movie is funny as heck, but the, you know, the acting. I mean, Joe Pesci and Marissa Tomei just do such outstanding jobs of bringing those characters to life. Marissa won the Academy Award. That was, you know... Whoever wins an Academy Award for a comedy, and she, particularly you know, she, an offbeat one like that, right? And she was, you know, basically unknown at that point. She won the Academy Award. How how did you come about getting to write this sequel? I mean, we, you know, I mean, it's an authorized sequel. How'd that happen? Well, it's a long story now because it dates back about two years. But as I said, I would watch that movie every time I saw it, whether it's the entire movie or. The first 10 minutes, the last 15 minutes, I always had to stick around and watch some of it. And as a writer, you know, as you know, you know, we writers have appreciation for other good writing. And I said to myself, like, who else has created a comedy that keeps me glued to it for 25 years? And I said, you know what? I just have to give him, you know, give him, you know, his, his props for it. So the movie, you know, tailed off and I picked up my computer and I did a search. Um, Dale Lawner, the guy who wrote and produced the movie, he, you know, I, I was able to locate his email address. And I said, you know what, for whatever it's worth, I'm going to send him a note just saying, man, you nailed it. You made a movie so good that I just can't, can't pull myself away from it when it pops up on the tube. So I sent out this email and I said, you know what, I did my part. I know that he's Joe Hollywood, you know, I'm dirt beneath, beneath his boots. I'm never going to hear back. You know, I'm sending this into the black hole and goodbye. But I did my part. Sure enough, within 20 minutes, he wrote, wrote back. And it wasn't just thank you. It was a two-page email talking about all kinds of things that were involved in making the movie and interesting tidbits about you know cast selection and studio decisions that would have ruined the film. And he was just very forthcoming about all this stuff. Now, Wow, that's pretty cool. Yeah. A real insight into the whole process there. Yeah, it was pretty amazing. Now, recently, I think in the last six months or a year, he gave an interview and all this stuff has been memorialized on the internet. Um, But some of these things were, well, I'll tell you, the most incredible thing to me was the studio wanted him to cut out Marissa Tomei's role. They didn't want Mona Lisa Vito in the movie. Yeah. This is, you know, this is a studio head talking. And um, what did they just want him to be single? They wanted, uh, you know, I, I don't have all the insights, but they, you know, they wanted Vinny to carry the bulk of it. And, but but uh, having her in there is such a great counterpoint to him. And it keeps, oh, yeah. I think it keeps the Vinny character from 
you know, from you don't get tired of him because you you get that palate cleanse of this other form of humor in her, and then their interchange is just some of the best lines that I can think of. Like when she looks over at him and she's like, "Oh right, like you blend." You know, I mean that that's one of my favorite lines from the movie. And how do you do that without having her? I, Hollywood doesn't always get it right. No, they don't. Actually, you know the the famous scene where she's talking about her biological clock. She's walking back and forth on the deck in a cat suit, stomping her feet. Yeah, that had to be written in after the fact, because they said, "Well, if you wanted to stay, you got to beef up parole then." So Dale went back and added that scene, and it, you know, ended up being you know one of the funniest scenes in the movie, if not the funniest scene. Certainly, one of the most mem- <clears throat> the most memorable. I mean, what would the movie have been without her? She was so great in it. Yeah, I don't think you could have made that movie without her, for sure. So this guy emails you back, he spills all this awesome insider information, and you guys become like pen pals? Yeah, that's pretty much it. Like I said, he was a very forthcoming guy. He told me a lot about not only Vinny, but what he was currently working on. He actually said, hey, I'm going to have to pitch this movie that I'm working on. How about if I pitch it to you? And he, he spent 30 minutes on the phone trying to pitch me the movie he was working on. You know, and he wanted feedback on it. So somehow, whatever, the chemistry developed. We became first email buddies and phone buddies. <clears throat> you know, eventually he asked me, he says, you know, so what kind of stuff do you write? And I started telling him about Stephanie Chalisi. I have this female detective. And, you know, she's too smart and too savvy for her own good. And she's very sexy and very funny, very tongue-in-cheek. So he said, well, if I want to read which one, which one would I read? And at the time, I was getting the most traction on the fifth book in a series, a book called Baby Girl Doe, which takes place on the east end of uh, Long Island, out in Montauk. And uh, he said, yeah, I'll read that one. And quite some time passed. I don't think he's a quick reader, uh, but then neither am I. And he, uh, he called up and he said, hey, I read your book and you're funny. Here's the guy who wrote My Cousin Vinny and Dirty Rotten Scoundrels calling me up and telling me I'm funny. Well, one of the things that revealed itself, and I don't remember exactly where in the timeline this happened, but he told me, you know, everybody will say, you know, my cousin Vinny, my God, it was so funny. How come they never made a sequel? So, you know, we talked about that at length. And, you know, initially he wrote another movie. Uh, Marissa Tomei didn't want to do it at the time. I don't know what her reasons were. I don't know if she didn't want to be typecast or she just had too many offers because, you know, right after that movie, she did a ton of stuff. But initially, she did not want to reprise the role. And then some years later, she changed her mind. And then Joe Pesci didn't want to do it. He was retired already. So it wasn't, um, wasn't made as a sequel. But he, did he have a script? He did have a script. He did write a script. And you know they played around with it for a while. And eventually, it was dropped because neither of the two actors were coming to the table. At one point... They talked to him about making My Cousin Vinny into a, into a sitcom. And he didn't really care for that idea. I don't think he liked the idea of, you know, maybe at the time TV writing wasn't what it is today. I mean, today, you know, you turn on whether it's HBO or Netflix or, or Hulu, Netflix or Showtime, or even some of the, you know, even some of the network shows. Some of them today are just really, really well written. But that really wasn't, wasn't the case before, let's say, 2010. And I think, you know, the idea of handing his characters over to people who are going to hand out a lot of mush didn't really strike home with him. So he didn't, you know, he didn't go for that. And I said, well, you know, well, how about if they, you know, they live on through books? And at that point he said, well, you know, I've always had that idea. 
not so much that he was specifically thinking about a novel as a vehicle, but he said, you know, I wanted to see them progress in their lives and eventually become sort of a Nick and Nora team, like Dashiell Hammett's Nick and Nora Charles. Of course, not British, of course, not stuffy or stodgy, a funny, a funny couple. But, uh, you know, a, a relationship where Elise would go out and do a lot of the investigation and Vinny would do the courtroom work. So he said, well, you'd have to, you know, I know you can write because I read your book. Um, you'd have to submit me some samples and I want to think about it because a movie comedy today, it's really just a lot of stoner humor and side gags. And that's not what, you know, what my cousin Vinny's about. You have to capture the, you know, the flavor of these, you know, Italian Americans from Brooklyn and the way they talk to each other and the way they bounce things off each other. And he says, most Something important- you know nothing about, right? <laughs> not, absolutely not. I come from Brooklyn. <laughs> Forget about it. <laughs> Forget about it. So I did, so you know, I did an outline for him and I, you know, he read some sample pages and he said, okay, you know, I feel comfortable with this, you know, you know, give me, you know, make me an offer. Well, that's the boring part of it. You know, 14 months later after you know, my attorney, his attorney, and two attorneys from 20th Century Fox finally got their quote-unquote shit together. <laughs> Back to Brooklyn was released. But it was it was a long and very aggravating process. But the writing had to be fun. The writing was a joy. I mean, I mean, let's face it. If, you know, if you're a writer, you should be writing because you enjoy it, whether it's, you know, I'm writing My Cousin Vinny or I'm writing anything else. If you're not enjoying what you're doing, there's no point in it. To, to sit down at the table and say, I'm sitting down here because I want to sell 5 million copies and be on television, or I want to make a fortune, or I want to be a household name. If you sit out with that expectation, it's never, you know, you're going at, the, at it for all the wrong reasons. But I, you know, I just love writing it. I love sitting down, you know, at the computer and, you know, and making Vinny talk and, and Lisa talk. And, you know, it's great entertainment for me. And Was that intimidating at all, Larry? I mean, these guys are, you know, kind of icons, these characters, and you've lived with them for so long. Were you at all intimidated that now now you're responsible for for guiding them through the story that uh, you're trying to tell? Did that weigh on you at all? Oh, yeah. Initially, you know, I said, wow, I've got to get this right. You know, people aren't going to be able to see, you know, Marissa Tomei's expressions, you know, you know, or Vinny's silly faces. So they've got to be able to read this and and hear the voices in their head. Um, so yeah, it initially was very very intimidating. But with that said, I've been studying for this role for 25 years, <laughs> <laughs> and I, you know, and I can't tell you how many times you know I've been in a conversation. And I would say, yeah, you Ute, you know, or you know, this is that magic grits. I mean, his his lines, you know, his lines and her lines are just indelibly, you know, embedded in my brain. Um, so eventually I was able to take their lines and, and morph them into, into new dialogue. So you had the rhythms of the characters, kind of dialogue patterns and how they thought and what, what their humor was like pretty well embedded in you, it sounds like. Uh, yeah, I, I feel like I did. Um, one of the things that, you know, Dale wanted me to be very careful about, he says, you know, they feed off each other, you know, it's like oxygen in the flame. He says, but they're never really arguing. If you will, you know, watch the movie, you know, and you see some of these scenes where they seem confrontational, they're not really fighting. Either they're trying to get one up on the other or they're trying to tick off the other a little bit, but it's never really a fight. It's more of a cat and mouse game. So, you know, with that in mind, it became a little bit, um, I was I can't say easier, but I became more focused on what the dialogues had to be like. And when Lisa's saying, listen, you dope, 
she's not calling him stupid. It's just the way she talks, and you know, right. she's trying to put a point across. Right. Right. So you 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 gave him voice in the novel, uh, but, but there's going to be uh, an audiobook version of this too, right? So someone else is going to have to give voice to both of these characters. Yes. <laughs> how, how, how difficult was that to audition the different the the two? Because you're using two different narrators, right? Yes, mul there, there's multiple narrators on the on the audiobook, and um, yeah, it was a lot of auditioning. Um, initially, you know, I was hoping to find sound-like actors. Somebody could completely emulate um, Joe Pesci's speech and his voice patterns and Marissa Tomei's speech and voice patterns. And that just not wasn't going to happen. We even went so far, my attorney went so far as to call. Uh, actually, when it comes to voice, they both use the same agent. And, the, you know, call is placed, you know, would they consider reprising their roles on the audiobook? And they said, how much money does this guy have? <laughs> because it's going to cost a lot. And he said, you know, unless you're prepared to really ante up, I'm not even going to broker the deal to them. So that ended right there. But I was fortunate enough to find a very um, seasoned voice actor, a guy by the name of Al Benelli. Um, he's got the right lineage already, right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he does. And he, he's done over 20 audiobooks and had done characters that sort of had that Brooklyn thing going on. Uh, he's an interesting guy. He's a professional stage actor. He toured the country playing Tevia, Tevia from Fiddler on the Roof. Interestingly enough, He's a former professional race car driver and race car instructor. And you guys had some things to talk about then. Yeah, we did. Actually, true story. I'm in the studio. He's got a little picture hanging up. It's, you know, maybe an eight by 10 frame. One of these, you know, beat up little metal frames with a photo in it. And it's him with a clipboard talking to, and I won't, I won't tell you at this moment, but he went back and told me how this came about. He was doing race car instruction. And the first day of the course, he's reading off his clipboard. He says, okay, Smith, meet me at track position one. Jones, meet me here. And then he takes a look at the next name on his clipboard. And he looks up and he says, okay, who's the asshole who wrote down Tom Cruise? <laughs> yeah. yeah. There's so, more. There's more. Yeah. No, so sure enough, and it's Tom Cruise. <laughs> Tom Cruise was ready to make uh, was Days of Thunder. Days of Thunder. Oh, yeah. And he needed some track time. And he went to this guy's class and really? he learned. Uh, yeah. I, I, actually, I read an interview years ago uh, that when he approached, Tom Cruise approached Paul Newman and said, hey, I want to make a racing movie. Uh, Paul, Paul Newman said, yeah, because Paul Newman's dabbled with the, the, that, that uh, as well as I'm sure you're aware. Oh, big time. And uh, Newman told him, yeah, okay, but you have to respect, you know, what really happens here and how it really works. You don't just go fast. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, you, you get yourself an education about this and we'll talk. And um, clearly the story you're telling is he, he did go get an education and it's, it's your, it's the guy that's playing Vinny. <laughs> so basically Vinny uh -huh. taught Tom Cruise how to, how to drive. <laughs> Who would have thunk it, right? <laughs> Uh, back when Tom Cruise was just a Ute. Right, well, uh, <laughs> Tom Cruise is kind of immortal, so I guess he'll always be a Ute. So this guy, he did he uh, he nailed the Vinny, the Vinny uh, narrative? Does he, does he handle the narrative and the Vinny lines, or how did that work? He does. He does both narrative and, and Vinny's, um, uh, Vinny's speech. 
he did a great job. I mean, you know, I listened to, he's got the kind of voice that you just get pulled in. You just want to listen to more and more. He, you know, he's not Joe Pesci. I mean, you know, there are people who have listened to the book, you know, even, you know, even in the pre-production, uh, in pre-release times and said, you know, he's very funny. It doesn't sound like Joe Pesci. And I said, Joe Pesci is not going <laughs> to, we're never going to get Joe Pesci to do it. So you have to listen to the audio tape as two new actors. I mean, if they made the movie today, chances are Joe Pesci would not be Vinny and Marissa Tomei would not be Lisa because they've aged too much. Unless they move the, the characters forward. Yeah, I don't, I think you're right. So, I mean, you know, even if they got, you know, a couple of hacks like Bradley Cooper and Jennifer Lawrence, let's say, right? <laughs> a couple of hacks. <laughs> but, um, you, know, you know, their portrayals would be different. You know, they would do Vinny and Lisa differently. They would sound differently. Mm -hmm. So you have to, you know, engage this audiobook. In that sense, the actors are not the same people. But I think, you know, um, this guy, Albinelli, did a great job as Vinny. And Megan Ware, who um, did Lisa, you know, they did, did really great jobs. And I, I really, I, I beat the crap out of them because it was very demanding. You know, I spent time in the studio with them. And even when, when I wasn't there, they would send back tracks for my review. And I would say, you know, you've got the emphasis on the wrong word. You know, it's not... It's not you dope, it's you dope, you know? I, mean, I would I would really pound on them to make sure they got it the way I thought it should be said. So at the end of it all, does did, does it sound like pretty close to what you heard in your head when you were writing it? Yes and no. When I write it, I hear Joe Pesci. When I write it, I hear Marissa Tomei. When I hear, write it, I hear Judge Halla. Decibel for decibel, the same speech patterns, the same volume, the same inflection. So it's different, but it's you know i have to go through the same process i have to disengage myself from the movie to listen to the book you know and i think it's done very well so you revisit uh vinny and mona lisa and back to brooklyn um are you is this a one-off or is this going to be part of a series or how's that working yeah um back to brooklyn is is um was based on being first in a series uh what we're doing next is we're novelizing the film. Um, oh, really? Yeah. Yep. yep really. Um, what we're doing is I've um, taken the film and built it up some by adding uh, insights um, from the mind of Dale Warner, um, yeah. things that he had in his mind when he created the character and did the movie. Um, for example, I mean, again, Joe Pesci did such a great job. But he's not really uh, the archetype of the, the character he envisioned when he wrote it. Uh, Vinny was supposed to be more like a Rocky Balboa. Um, not that he, you know, had slurred speech and, you know, was shouting, Adrian, you know, all the time. But sort of, you know, a little bit more of a lug, a bigger guy, um, you know, more imposing. Uh, actually, um, a former um, amateur boxer. So, you know, he envisioned the characters initially, he didn't see Joe Pesci. Um, so I take some of those insights um, and then I, you know, uh, go into the fact that, you know, if you remember the movie, Vinny's always trying to read, but he's always upset about it. And what they don't tell you is that he's, he's not necessarily a slow reader because he suffers from an uh, intellect deficit, but he's dyslexic. So, you know, we start divulging some of these behind the scenes thoughts and ideas that occurred to Dale when he was writing it. And we've added in, or I've added in new jokes and additional scenes. So, 
it, you know, I didn't want it to be the kind of thing. Well, so, you know, I saw the movie. The movie was great. Why do I need to read the book? Well, the book is different. The book's got more. It's got more in depth. It's got insights. It's got more jokes, more scenes. So, I wanted to give the a reader, you know, a, a reason to pick it up. Well, that you know, that would almost be more intimidating to me than the than than writing back to Brooklyn the sequel because now you're taking the holy grail of the of comedy uh -huh. for you and, and and reworking it. But you did that after Back to Brooklyn, right? I did that after Back to Brooklyn. Correct. So you had some confidence and some foundation there. And a lot to drink. <laughs> well, I don't know that that necessarily would be a bad thing when you're writing comedy, right? Right. No, definitely not. <laughs> We'll get back to our conversation with Larry Kelter in just a moment, but first let's hear from the experts, and in this case, the expert, uh, and by experts I mean uh, bookstore owners, bookstore employees, particularly those of the independent mystery variety, uh, and for this episode we're going to hear from Fran Fuller up in Seattle, Washington at the Seattle Mystery Bookshop. Hey Fran, how are you? I'm doing well. Okay, for what I'd love to recommend to you now is the latest book by Jocelyn Jackson. And first of all, her name is spelled J-O-S-H-Y-I-L-Y-N, but it's still pronounced Jocelyn. Her book is The Almost Sisters. and It's an intriguing title. Oh, yeah. Well, but it, and it gets even better because you've got our heroine, who is a comic book artist, and she has drawn for all of the big names, and she's got her own series that has its own huge following, Violence in Violet. And then she turns around and goes to a Comic-Con and discovers that she's pregnant from a black Batman. No idea who he is. It was a one-night stand, and it was a fun one, but... <laughs> Then she gets called down to her her family home where her grandmother and her grandmother's best friend are living together in this old southern plantation house in this old southern little town where they are the undisputed rulers, but something's going wrong. And so she's got to go down and figure this out and figure out how to tell them that they're going to be great grandmother and oh it's it's just the writing all of jocelyn's writing is completely magic and it's just so wonderful how she deals with racial tension and all kinds of bigotry that we try to hide under the surface of civility but it's always there and and where is this set um it starts off in Virginia, but then it ends up in Alabama. Cool. Well, we'll have to check that out. Oh, anything by Jocelyn Jackson, but this one just knocks it out of the park. Well, thanks, Fran. Thanks so much, Frank. Hope to talk to you soon. And now let's get back to our conversation with Lawrence Kelter. So uh, I guess which which of your series would you say is the most uh, uh, best known or the, the most uh, prominent? It's definitely the Stephanie Chalisi mystery series. Without question, I've sold so many more copies of that than anything else. And that's funny. I, I, I like most people probably look at it and say Stephanie Chalice. So, so it right. is Chalisi. 
It is Chalisi. It's Chalisi. She uh, is of Italian descent. Uh, she's a daughter of Frank um, and Lisa Chalisi, um, Manhattan girl. And uh, yeah, I mean, if you look at the name straight straight up, it looks like Chalice. And uh, that's come back. <laughs> that's come back to bite me. <laughs> 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 this never happens, Frank. I don't yeah, know what you're, it is. you're popular all of a sudden. People no, are like, um, uh, oh, he's yeah, on he's on the nationally acclaimed podcast. Let's let's ask him how it's going. <laughs> <laughs> so so uh, Stephanie Chalisi, she's an NYPD detective. She is, yeah. She's um, she's really the first um, protagonist I created. So it's taken many many years to to refine her personality. When I first started writing her, um, I think the first um, Chalisi novel was published in 2005, and it got some really, you know, good reviews. But there were also a lot of people who came back and said that she's not not a real woman, that you know, she's the male, um, she's the female embodiment of a male fantasy, and they were probably right. <laughs> I mean, I didn't didn't start out with that in mind, but. Going back years later and rereading it, um, there were some definite, definite mistakes. Like what? She was, you know, too sexy, too pretty, too um, acerbic. Her, her dialogue was a little too acerbic. But um, I think most of all, you know, was the fact that she was too pretty, too sexy. And I talked about it too much throughout the book. So she was too aware of her own prettiness and her own sexiness? Yes, exactly so. Now, this was your the first protagonist that you created. What made you decide to go with a female protagonist? At the time that I decided to to start, you know, writing, um, I was a big fan of Nelson Mill and his John Corey character, and I liked how he was so uh, secure, or you know, uh, secure. You know, felt you know he was, he was right in his own skin, and he was you know, he was smart mouth, and he was funny. And I said, well, you know, I can't write John I can't make a character like John Corey he just called something else so I kind of took his personality and I I morphed him into a woman a woman with it and, you know that's how I, I came you know came to draw Stephanie Chalisi for the first time and but she's not the same as she was when you first uh first created her then it sounds like I mean she's changed over the course of the series oh she's changed considerably there are six books dedicated exclusively um to Chalisi um, three prequels and uh, one book where she joins forces with another one of my um, my heroines Chloe Mather Chloe Mather right yeah. and you know there's a you know not only a, a story arc but there's a life arc when you're writing a series and she's had to change and adjust as the books move marched on now you, you said you did a crossover novel with her uh, and Chloe Mather what can you tell me about about Chloe and Mather uh, Chloe is a um, an ex Marine, um, actually um, one of the few women Marines who saw combat. But usually, when Marine, female Marines are assigned, they're usually in a clerical capacity. They're transcribers or they're in tech. They, very few of them actually see combat. But during the um, uh, the wars in the Middle East, uh, there was a group called the uh, the FET, the Female Engagement Team. And their primary function was to accompany male soldiers into villages because in the um, Islamic um, faith, men and women, 
that aren't married can't really um, communicate or you know or discuss things amongst you know between each other so they bring along a woman because a woman is allowed to do that so that was her primary function but in the course of doing that because it was a combat area you know she saw you know she, she saw active combat and was involved in in raids and rescues that's a cool premise oh thank you so uh she she had, saw saw battle in in the middle east uh mm -hmm. where does the bulk of the series take place though just to you know scooch back in her in her history prior to going to the military she comes from a broken family her mother is a uh, is a fairly uh cynical british lady and her father is an american who um basically um destroyed the family because he was um weak and greedy he um, took all the money out of the family business and he cheated and he destroyed the family he not only destroyed his wife but destroyed his relationship with chloe and that's one of the reasons why you know she felt the need to go into the military um, when she comes back she joins the fbi and becomes a special agent um, assigned to criminal activities here in new york city all their agents are special they're all special <laughs> in some way <laughs> So she becomes an FBI agent, and what's her what's her specialty? Does she have a specialty like profiling or bank robberies or something? No, it's 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 just you know criminal activity in New York in criminal uh, in uh, in New York City. So that's how she comes across Stephanie Chalice, uh, Chalice rather. Yeah, they do have a common point, and that is that she works for a senior special agent, an SSA. His name is Herbert Ambler. Uh, who, uh, who who uh, originated in the Chalisi series. Herbert Ambler um, goes back. He was Chalisi's uh, father's pal in the days when um, her father was still alive. And he's sort of a Dutch uncle to her. He's always there for her. Um, he's one of the few people on the in the FBI that she can call and, you know, not get jerked around with who will give information that maybe she couldn't obtain through her regular police connections. Um, so they go back. He's in almost every one of her novels, if not every one of them, and they've got a special relationship. Um, but what happens in, in book six of the Chalisi series is that she's hit by a ricocheting bullet, and it does some serious damage to her, requiring a lengthy recovery and medications, and she cannot um, come back to the NYPD until she's been uh, able to function without medication for at least a year. And she's going kind of batshit crazy because she's inactive. Uh, and Herbert Ambler throws her, throws her a rope, so to speak, and pulls some, pulls some, um, pulls some favors in and is able to get her to uh, become part of the FBI. Coincidentally, Mather is also damaged goods for a very different reason. And he kind of throws them together thinking that together they'll heal each other. Well, I don't want to uh, ask you to, to put a spoiler out there whether they managed to do that or not. So I'll leave that one hanging. Okay. <laughs> um, so then uh, who is Frank Mango? I didn't think you were going to ask that, that question. But now that you did, you know, I've had previous lives. I wasn't always a full-time writer. From 2002 to 2014, I was in um, banking and finance. And there was somebody I worked with who I've never really met but I, I would speak to him on the phone every couple of weeks, and his name was Frank Mango. And every time the phone rang, <laughs> I saw Frank Mango on a dialer. I had a laugh <laughs> before I picked it up. 
anyway, I had this vision of what a Frank Mango would look like. And I pictured him as this, you know, you know seedy, salty, gritty, greasy, fat guy, an L.A. detective who, um, you know, is basically solving, you know, very sordid mysteries and cases. There's nothing clean about anything he does, not the way he goes about it or the people he investigates or his informants. They're all, you know, from the underbelly, so to speak. But he's, you know, he's a lot of fun to play with. Did you ever meet the real guy? Um, very, very briefly, you know, just at, you know, some kind of conference. Hey, Frank, good to see you. And, Did you, you look know. at all like you expected? A little bit. <laughs> <laughs> much, much, yeah, much younger. <laughs> I hope he's not listening to this show. <laughs> no, I don't think so. But, you know, he's younger. He didn't have the barnacles and the wear on him that Frank Mango has in, in the novel. And, you know, I'm sure he has a normal life, whereas Frank Mango does not. Not even close. Right, right. Mm-hmm. Whenever you base a, a character on a real person, there's there's always a pretty quick departure, you know, even from the very beginning, but from the real, you know, from the real person and the, the character that you've created. Right. Absolutely. Uh, but it's kind of funny when you, when you do it before you've ever met the guy and then you get to meet him. That's kind of, that's pretty cool. Um, right. What's the palindrome series? Uh, the palindrome series really never quite became a series because I only wrote the first book and not that I don't want to complete it at some point, but I just haven't had time to, to get around to it yet. So the, the freestanding palindrome book is about a young woman who she can morph. Her and her brother can can kind of morph, not into chickens and ducks and pigs and things like that, but they can alter their appearance. I won't give it too much of it away, but it's a psychological story. It's a psychological thriller. So it leaves the reader to ponder whether these things are really happening or not. But I, I really can't say more about that sounds kind of cool, actually. That aspect about of it without giving away the whole story. Um, That's another cool premise. I like it. Uh, um, yeah, I have all kinds of weird ideas, as you know. <laughs> yes, I do. <laughs> you know, uh, it's been great talking with you, Larry. I'm glad I finally got to uh, get you on the show. And uh, sounds like Back to Brooklyn is doing great and uh, is, is a whole new line for you. Not that you needed another series with <laughs> all the work you've been uh, doing them um but you've got a bunch of series too you get the um, yeah i'm the pot calling the kettle black that's yeah for sure. there you go i i, I, I hear you mm-hmm. um thanks for coming on the show i really appreciate it i wish you good luck uh, my pleasure well that was great to get the opportunity to talk to larry uh and uh for those of you that uh were interested in hearing more about our collaboration and that process uh, let me remind you again, if you go to It's a Mystery podcast, if you Google that, uh, or if you go to the website of the author Alexandra Amore, uh, you'll hear a uh, good 30, 40 minutes of Larry and I talking about uh, our collaboration about The Last Caller uh, and Fallen City, and we had a really great time. Next time on Wrong Place, Right Crime, we are going to talk to Fleur Bradley, who's written some children's novels in addition to the mystery writing that she's done. She sat down with us for a flash-forward quick 10 questions, and here's what she had to say. Fleur Bradley, what city do you live in now? Colorado Springs, Colorado. Your favorite writer? For kids, Roald Dahl. And for crime, probably Michael Connelly. Your favorite movie? For kids, Up, <laughs> since I write for kids. And um, I liked Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Favorite TV show? Broadchurch. I haven't heard of that one. No, it's British. Ah. 
Do you have a nickname? No, I don't. Mom, probably. <laughs> uh, what are you working on right now? A children's book about two kids who find a bag of money and they're trying to figure out what to do with it. What hobby do you have that has nothing to do with writing? Oh, I really like to hike, I like to garden, and I like to fix stuff around the house. Your favorite sport? Oh, I'm, I'm horribly unathletic. Your favorite musician? I like Sarah Bareilles. Your five-second advice to aspiring writers? Get in there and do it and have some fun. Where would you like to go that you've never been? Africa. What's your favorite quote? The Gandhi one, be the change you want to see in the world. Cool. Now you know more than you ever thought you'd know about Fleur Bradley, although that's not true. If you tune into the next episode, you'll learn even more about her. So uh, I'd like to thank uh, Larry Kelter for being on the show, Down Out Books, of course, for sponsoring, and Fran Fuller uh, for making a great recommendation. Look forward to talking to you next time on Wrong Place, Right Crime. Until then, this is Frank Zafiro reminding you that sometimes you got to be in the wrong place to write crime.